So here, look, something really contemporary. Rivergate Christian Community has been meeting in this building comfortably for how many years? Nearly 13 years. All is well, apart from some people who just got a little older. There's plenty of capacity for seating. There's even a room for a bouncy castle if you're young enough. There's a play park outside. Look, we've got all the technology to our hand, a projector. You've even got a fantastic view, the speaker anyway. I mean, it's just great looking out at that. Why on earth would we consider relocating? Seriously. I mean, just look at us. We're, most of us, a lovely group of Christian people. All of us, I'm sure. Okay, we get on well. We, it's a great place to come and meet. It's a cozy place. And this, this is something of a comfort club, isn't it? It's great. We know each other uh, and we, we get on. Why would we want to unsettle all that? I mean, yeah, we're going to come to Yeah, you hold a thought in tension and we'll come back to that. Because here's what I want to ask. Why is the leadership team of Rivergate disturbing our comfort, disengaging us from what's familiar, and expecting us to cross the river. I mean, that's a big feat, okay? Especially as there's no direct crossing from Athelstan to Ridgehaven. You have to go all the way down towards Campbelltown. What is it all about? And what will we do when we get there? Party all night? Yeah, good idea, says George. I thought he, he would take to that. Shop till we drop. I mean, you've got TTP right down the bottom. Or stuff our faces, Hungry Jacks. I mean, I, we haven't even moved there yet. And here's George stuffing himself with a whopper. And it was a big whopper. <laughs> and I think he just, did you just have fries, George? Jeff, Jeff. Jeff, Jeff was it just fries? Something like that, yeah, yeah. But I did notice that when I was walking away, he went back inside and walked home with a doggy bag of, uh, of goodies. I mean, what is it about? What are we missing? What is this move really about? Uh, it's worth asking, and we do need to know that. This isn't just a game of chess that we just relocate whenever we feel like it. What's behind it? And as we ask that question, I want us to look at Matthew 28 afresh and try and deserve from there what's being the catalyst for all this upcoming upheaval. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of stuff to relocate and rejig and set up and get going. So let's look at the text. We're going to have just three verbs as three headings. Okay, just simple. Number one, go. Number one, go. Let me start at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. It's the first Easter. It's Sunday. It's three day, just three days earlier, back on Friday, Jesus was handed over by his own people to the Romans to be executed. That seemed to be the end, but here he is. He's alive. He's appeared to the female disciples already. I think it's incredible that Jesus chose to reveal himself in his resurrected body, firstly, above any other person, to females. And what that would have done to the status of women in that culture 
It is incredible. He then tells him to tell his disciples to go and meet him in a location up north. It's five days away. I mean, the journey from Jerusalem to Galilee is quite a journey. I mean, it's four, five days journey. Now, when they get there, verse 17, they saw him and it's somewhat bizarre. Listen to, listen to their, hear their response. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Literally meaning they, they bowed down to him. Why? Why would you do that? Any thoughts? Why would you do that? I mean, it's a big thing. I mean, it's a big thing for a Jew to do. Why is that a big thing for a Jew to do? To bow down in, in homage, in adoration, in worship of Jesus. Why is that a big deal? They did. Yeah. So why would it have been a big deal for them to do that? Because they should be worshipping Yahweh as God. Not bowing to any other God. They saw him as God, as Brunner said. Because look, what did they seen just three days earlier? What did they witness? A brutal assassination. He was disfigured and marred beyond recognition. They saw his lifeless corpse. They carried it, prepared it, and buried it, and sealed the stone over it, and said goodbye forever. They did that. Every one of the disciples said goodbye to Jesus. This was the end of a great man's life. Except he is just a few days on. His flesh restored. Restored. And walking and talking, living as a naturally, the only, the only assumption you can make is that standing before them is not a man, but God. So they worshipped him. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's some complex Trinitarian theology here, but just briefly to say that Jesus as God's son through this act of obedience is coming into his own as it were. Coming into, if you like, adulthood if you like. Coming into his time and so the father in response to his obedience passes it seems the kingdom to him. Look, all authority in heaven has been passed over to me he's stepped into his full right as the son of God which he demonstrated he's worthy of by his act of ultimate obedience we looked at it last week his obedience to the cross verse 19 and therefore he says these words therefore because he's now in charge of the universe as it were therefore go and make disciples of all nations when we look at who they were, a lot of them fishermen, um, a tax collector, and a couple of other folks, and religious zealots, it's most probable that they'd never left the country. It's, it's highly probable that never stepped out of the country. And here's Jesus, and I want you to gather the magnitude of this. Here's Jesus, I mean, let me ask, who here has never left the shores of Australia? Well, that's not going to work here, is it? <laughs> Okay, we have one person. Okay, one person. Uh, okay, just imagine, okay, 
coming to you, to, to you now. And Jesus gives this, uh, this command. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. What a thing. What a thing. And, and I think that's how we have to look at it. Look, we've got a bunch of indigenous people, trademen, most of them, who'd never probably left the country. And Jesus issues this command there to go and make disciples of Jesus across the face of the globe. How do you do it? How do you go about that? Listen to this. Here's just Jesus says, Acts 1. So this is another episode just before he leaves them. And he says these words to them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This task that he was given them, they had no power to accomplish. And I think the first thing we have to acknowledge as those who take on the mantle, that we, do, we are not actually competent in and of ourselves to fulfill the purpose of Jesus. And so Jesus empowers these men. And on that empowering, I don't know if you know some of these details, we'll just look at a few of them. Andrew traveled as far as Greece. Matthew to Iran. Peter to Italy. Philip to Turkey. John to the island of... Patmos, one of the Greek islands. Thomas, does anyone know where Thomas went? Finally, India. Seriously, all the way over there. And we know Paul traveled almost to every corner of the Roman Empire. And because of that, today, just 2,000 years on, I don't know if you're aware of these figures, there are approximately 2.5 billion people Billion, 2.5 billion people, a third of the world's population that know something of Jesus and Christianity, that claim in some form to adhere to it. His disciples, Jesus' disciples have made the name of Jesus the most famous name in the history of the world. Do you know that? They have made the name of Jesus the most famous name in the history of the world. And his teachings, which they recorded in the Bible, I'm just looking for my Bible, it's disappeared. And his, and his uh, it's over there, his teachings, the Bible, they have made the most successful and best selling book in the face, on the face of the planet across all time. The most successful book in all the world. Go, Jesus said to them, and make disciples of all nations. I landed on the shores of Great Britain back in 1978. That's right, mate. I don't look old enough, but I did. Okay? I was soon, within, within a few years, introduced to Christianity. It took me like, like a storm. It was just revolutionary. I, I, I grasped it with, with, with enthusiasm. I went up to the church where my friend told me about it and went up to the pastor, this is every pastor's dream, and said to him, I want to be a Christian. Please help me to find Jesus. Seriously, no exaggeration. As a consequence of that, came to faith. Okay, but... My conversion to Christianity was anchored in whose initial work? 
Yes, uh, finally, my friends, but whose initial work, what was that the product of? Yes, the spirit, but more than, yes, the human agency. The Great Commission and the human agency? The church? I'm thinking of specifics. Give me some names. Who do I owe my salvation to? Whose labors ensured that I became a Christian? Paul and Mark. Not Mark. He's certainly one of them. Yes, I've lost all the names. (laughs) Peter, James, John, Paul, Andrew, Bartholomew, and the rest. Can you see? My salvation was triggered by Paul and Peter and John traveling the globe. Okay, it was hundreds of years apart, but it began a chain reaction that led to my conversion. And in fact, just a couple of hundred years before my conversion, a group of Christians from the Isles of Great Britain with a lot of convicts under their care traveled thousands of miles across the sea and landed on this island and introduced to this island, Jesus Christ. And as a consequence of which, you, well he's an Englishman, but you, and you, and you, are now converts to Christianity. And so collectively, you and I can trace back our Christianity and our faith back to those 12 men, including Paul, who replaced Judas, to them and their labors. It all began then because they obeyed the commission to go and make disciples of Jesus. So here's, a, here's where we left. You can imagine, and it, w- it would have been true to them, there was, it was impossible for 12 men to bring the whole world under the sound of Jesus' name. So how did they make sure that he would? It was impossible, even under the power of the Holy Spirit, it was impossible for those 12 men to spread the name of Jesus throughout the entire globe of this world. So what strategy did they take on board to make sure he would do that? Yeah, explain that to me. That'll teach you for saying something in the middle of my sermon. Explain that to me. Yes. Because there's no way they could do it by themselves. So what did they do? Every convert they made, they passed on their gauntlet, their baton. And as it were, they took Jesus' commission to them. And you can't forget that, friends. Jesus' commission was to them, but they passed it on to us and said, as it were, you believe. Now it's your turn. You do the next lap. You do the next stint. And then when you've reached your end, you pass the mantle on to another and he'll do the next stint and she'll do the next stint and he'll do the next stint and she and he and him and her and through that today, two and a half billion people. It's not a small number, is it? Two and a half billion people claim some attachment to Christianity and almost every inhabitant of the planet knows his name. And hence the writer to the Hebrew writes these words. And it's an encouragement to us, friends, to look back on how we've got to where we are. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Matthew, Luke, no, they're not even decided, Bible writer, Matthew, 
James, John, I'll, I'll get that eventually, okay? Okay, and the rest of them, the great cloud of witnesses and the subsequent people that they converted in those early days since we're surrounded by these great cloud of witnesses. Here's the command to us. Here's the, uh, the baton being passed on to us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us push aside everything that will stop us doing this properly and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And in doing so, let us fix our eyes on Jesus who also endured great hardship to communicate and bring God to us. And so the challenge to us, friends, is to go. It's to consider the, the wealth of people who've gone before us, starting with those original disciples, and on the back of that, for us to go. Why are we moving from this location to Rich Haven? It's because we're called to go. We're called to make great sacrifices. We're called to step out of familiarity. We're called to step out of comfort zones. We're called to go through trouble, turmoil, pain, and sacrifice, and everything else that it entails, and to make disciples. That's what the relocation is all about. Let me ask you, here's a question. Why didn't Jesus just send the disciples back to their villages where he was more comfortable? I mean, it's an obvious answer. Why didn't he just send them back to what they knew and expect them just to get on with it there? Why? Yeah. yeah well, that wouldn't have been received for one. But hey, you were never going to convert the world by doing a gospel work in tiny little Nazareth. That's why. It's strategic. Can you see that? You were never going to make a global impact from Nazareth. Seriously? Nazareth? It just wasn't going to happen. And so the point is, Jesus commissions them to spread out and to reach the globe. And in spreading out, I want you to realize what he was expecting of them. And we see this in no one better than in Paul. He was expecting them to use one key feature of our anatomy. What? Someone tell me. He was expecting him spreading out and taking his gospel, his mouth, but one even greater than that that controls the mouth. He was expecting them to use one key element of our anatomy, which sometimes is left on the sideline in Christian work, but he was expecting them to plug it in and engage it. What is it? Yes, that comes from what organ? The brain. Yes, yeah, some people have their brains in their feet. Yeah, they do, Sylvia. It explains why they make some of those silly decisions. But it's, he was expecting to use the brain. You see, you, when you look at the Apostle Paul, you have to ask yourself, why did Paul, taking on the mantle of the Great Commission, which he inherited from the other 11, why did he plant a church in Corinth, Ephesus, and Philippi? Why? Someone tell me Why? God sends to the Gentiles, yes, that is, but something even greater than that. Why those places and other, other, other cities? Why did he choose those locations? They were strategic places. It meant that he engaged the brain that God had given him. It meant he sat down and he thought about the world. He mapped out the world. He put 
pins in the most strategic locations, the most influential locations, the cosmopolitan cities of the ancient world, and he chose them to begin a gospel work that would radiate from those places. Do you know Corinth was the New York City of the ancient world? It was where it all happened. It's where you went to make money. It's where everyone went. And if you wanted to influence the world, you went to Corinth. Paul wanted to influence the world and went to the major strategic cities of his world. And what he tells us is this, friends, that in gospel work, in making disciples, we mustn't leave our brains outside the door to engage them we're to be strategic we're to map out our, our community and work out what are the most strategic locations for having the greatest gospel influence and that's why it's rich haven and the pelican plaza i don't know if you know this friends the pelican you probably look you're aussies you know more than me okay okay so so if i'm t- if i'm just telling you stuff you know just ignore this okay but here's how it is okay the pelican plaza sits on top of a hill okay on sits at an intersection where sixty thousand vehicles pass every day okay how many people is that potentially 100, 150, I mean, working at least two people to a car, maybe three, school runners, maybe four, maybe five. You're talking 100, 200,000 people who will go past that location and say, Mommy, what's that? Seriously. Okay, not only that, he's sitting on top of a hill, just down the bottom of the hill, less than 200 meters is what? No, 100 meters is directly opposite. What's 200 meters down at the bottom of the hill? The most cosmopolitan place in the northeast. <laughs> T3 Plaza. And Centrelink. And Modbury Hospital. And it's the hub of the northeast. Is that right? Am I getting this wrong? And Modbury School. Yeah. And down the road, Maxine's house. Okay? You're talking about. The cosmopolitan area of the Northeast. That's why. And on a dark night, on a dark night as you leave T3 Plaza and drive up the hill, or as soon as you exit on a dark night with all the darkness of that environment, you will see in four weeks' time, if you look up the hill, There, on top of that hill. Next slide, please, Denise. An illuminated cross. Hundreds and thousands of people every evening will look up towards that hill and based at the top of that hill will be the emblem of hope. Hope for our community and our world, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we're relocating to Pelican Plaza and the old Red Cross building because it gives us, in a very very literal sense, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5? It's almost a, a literal fulfillment of what he says for us to do. You want a city on a hill, and what does he say? In the same way, 
let your light shine. Well, you can't do it any better than sticking a cross on top of a hill and to light it up at night for hundreds of thousands of people to see that we're there. And that there's hope for them. That there is a God in this world and that he loves people. And that through the cross, he has made salvation accessible for all who believe. That's what it's about, friends. It's about making disciples, extending the kingdom, placing ourselves in the most strategic location, the most visible location, where our message can reach the, the metropolis of our world. That's why we're going go. Secondly, how am I doing for time? Secondly, what are we going to do when we get there? Okay, what are we going to do when we get there? Okay, what's involved in making disciples? Let me ask you, what says Jesus, is in this text, are the key elements of making genuine and authentic and sound disciples that will make it all the way to heaven. Let me, let me say this to you. There is absolutely no value in building a church of 500 people, 5,000 people, or 50,000 people if none of them or hardly any of them get to heaven. Seriously, what a waste of time. And so let me ask you, what is the key two features, says Jesus, is in this passage, that's essential to making converts that last the course? Yes, one of them is teaching, we're going to come to that, but what's the first one in that structure before the teaching? Begins with the birth, baptize, isn't this? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and it begins here, baptizing them. It's the quintessential mark of conversion. It's not an optional extra to Christianity, it's essentially tied to it that when we come to faith in Christ baptism is the initial and first step it declares it puts a marker point in it raises a flag and it announces I have been converted Jesus says that it's essentially he demonstrates it by putting it first in the order look when the gospel writers wrote what they wrote when Jesus said what he said he never said the wrong thing you know like when we put our foot in the mouth, or mouth in the foot? Which way round is it? When we, put, when we put our foot in our mouth, is that the way round it is? Do you see? I mean, how, well, how best to illustrate something than to do it yourself? That was a demonstration for your entertainment, okay? <laughs> right, right. This order is important. It's essential that as the, as, as the first step in conversion, you're baptized. Let me ask you, if you've been converted, are you baptized? Because Jesus sees it as an essential part of demonstrating faith. Looks a bit like this. I've never been in the army, but I had aspirations of joining the Air Force when I was little. Okay, look, if you want to join the army, I mean, you could probably tell me more about this, Misha, than I know. But look, you have to go through 80 days in Aussie or 12 weeks of basic training. It's only at the end of that training when you go to the passing out parade and when there are officials there and, and you're given your recognition that you're officially enlisted into the army. That public ceremony finalizes your training and makes you an official 
recruit of the Australian army? I want you to think of baptism in a similar way, except it's slightly different, okay? Baptism is an initiatory rite, unlike the passing out of the parade where a soldier doesn't effectively become a soldier until he's completed the basic training of 12 weeks. In Christianity, faith brings us to that place and baptism is the initiation ceremony, as it were, that publicly declares that you and I have come to faith. It publicly demonstrates that George, his old life, that life of whatever you used to get to before you converted, I mean, I'm not sure what drugs or was it, George? Uh, whatever it was, okay, it, it's saying that we're taking the old life of George and we're putting him under water. What are we doing to him? We are... Burying a dead man. I mean, are you aware of this? That you cannot come to faith in Jesus without dying. Do we know that? We cannot come to faith in Jesus without dying. The old man has to die. He has to be buried. And then what do we do with them if we like them after a few seconds? We raise them to life. They begin a new life and it demonstrates that. And Jesus says that is important. It's of first importance. He puts it first on the list. That following conversion. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He gets converted on his chariot. Philip is, is there speaking to him. I mean, he's only been converted. I mean, seconds. What does he want? Within seconds of his faith. He wants to be dunked. Seriously. He goes, here's some water. Get on with it. Stop talking. Because he understood that baptism is an initiatory rite of Christianity that belongs at the very first step of faith. We believe and we be baptized. We come to faith and we get baptized. And so as we move on, friends, towards our new location and towards what God wants us to do, what will be an essential part of us making disciples is when they come to faith in Jesus, when they've heard the gospel, when they say, I believe, is to get a pool out in public, in front of hundreds of thousands of people, and to submerge them in water for the whole of Tea Tree Gully and beyond to see. And if that's putting you off, Catherine, bad luck. <laughs> it's going to happen. Seriously, baptism isn't meant to be a little tucked away. You know, don't tell anybody. It's meant to be megaphone stuff. Because the act itself is evangelistic. What do you think thousands of people who look across and see you being submerged in water are going to be thinking to themselves? What's that about? What's going on there? Maybe we need to go and find out. Maybe this is something we need to do. So there needs to be baptism and the third and final thing, and, and, it's, and it's of immense importance and really underlines everything we're saying. And so Jesus puts it like this. Therefore God make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The fundamental mark of a Christian community is why Nick had his great idea of calling this church initially Christian community because it's what we are. Okay, look, uh, the, the fundamental mark of a Christian community, a church, in layman's language, if you like, a church, is making disciples by baptizing them and what? By making disciples by baptizing them and teaching them 
every word he spoke. Jesus never spoke an idle word. I say tons of them all the time. It's why my sermons take so long to do. Jesus never spoke an idle word. And he, he insists that every disciple who comes to faith and is baptized then spends the rest of their existence as Christian coming under the sound of sound Bible teaching. That's his point. That every disciple comes under the continued sound of everything that is taught. Let me break it down for you. Let me give you some background. Jesus is, I want you to notice that Jesus is setting a contrast here. Can you pick up the contrast? He goes, he wants them to be taught everything I have commanded you. That is setting up a contrast, an immensely controversial contrast for which he could have very well been stoned. What's the contrast he's setting up? It was a dangerous thing for him to say, but he was setting up an immense precedent. Look, listen, listen again. He wants you to teach them, I want you to teach them everything I have commanded you. There's a contrast going on there. What is it? Have a guess. It's yes, you got it. It's against the whole of the old covenant. Can you see his emphasis? I want you to command them everything I have commanded you. Jesus is very specifically changing all the focus of Jewish people from the Torah, from the old covenant, from Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Hezekiah and Habakkuk and everybody else I can't think of just now. Okay, He wants to move their focus from that to himself. Jesus is monopolizing the transition of faith that is so that it's centered entirely and exclusively upon himself. Let me show you. I'm going to give you some examples of how he did this. He did it all through his ministry. Let me give you a quote first. Look, this is what France says. Okay, the point of the text here is to make disciples is not complete and therefore you're not getting to heaven unless it leads them to a life of observing Jesus' commands. You see what he's saying? See in quote, in, in commenting on this verse, and then the NIV Bible puts it more succinctly. Okay, uh, the NIV commentary. The focus is on Jesus' commands, not Old Testament law. You see, up until then, the whole of the Torah, the whole of the Old Covenant, governed the lives of those who were in faith. But since Jesus' advent, there's a dislodging from Old Covenant to Jesus' commands. You see, Jesus is effectively saying, that currency that you held, that mosaic currency, is debunked. It won't get you anywhere. It's worth nothing to you now. The only currency that now is of any value is what I say and what I say alone. And he demonstrated this. I'm going to show you. I don't know if you ever listened to the Sermon on the Mount like, quite like this. I've just given you a pair of new spectacles. You can pay me later. Okay? I want you to look through those spectacles and listen to these teachings of Jesus. And I want you to see something you've probably never seen before. If you have, please excuse me. Just listen, to, listen afresh to some excerpt from his Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see the emphasis of this. You have heard it was said. What was he quoting when he said that? The Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And then what does he say? But 
I tell you, boys are loaded. Can you see? You've heard the Old Testament, but I'm telling you now, you listen to me. Again, let me say the next one, Matthew 25 again. You've heard he said, he's talking about adultery, quoting the Old Covenant. Then he has the audacity, and it is audacious. He has the audacity to say, you've heard the Old Covenant, but I tell you, you listen to me, and me only, exclusively me. Jesus is taking upon himself the exclusive right as the head of faith. And it's why in the whole sermon he finishes off with these words that really cap off that incredible sermon that Matthew uh, uh, records for us. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, and just here, look for these spectacles that I've given you, the ones you've got to pay for at the end. Just look through those spectacles and listen to this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of Moses, oh, that's the contrast being set here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts my words into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock and that rock uh, did not collapse. Christianity, faith in Christ, is anchored in the teaching of Jesus. Um, we're going to look at that together. In January, once we made our move, that's why I've been holding back. You, were, you didn't know why I was holding back. Thinking, why does he keep talking about Galatians but never starts it? I'm holding back for the move. Okay, we can start a new series together. It's why in Galatians we'll do this. We'll dismantle this whole connection between old and new covenant. We'll look at the continuity and the discontinuity and how the whole thing sticks together. This is just an entree to that, if you like. But the point is simply this, is that we've moved on to Jesus. Here's what uh, Franz says again. Look, they are to teach not just abstract ideas, those who have the, the license or the office to teach God's people. Here's what Franz is saying in response to this text. They're not to just to teach abstract ideas, but to observe all that I have commanded you. The preacher, the church, is not on the license to teach abstract ideas, but only and exclusively Everything that Jesus commanded. It's an important distinction I want to make here. Friends, we, we were away recently, as you know. We, we traveled some of your rugged outback. That is not bitumen. That is a proper outback road. Done it in a two-wheel drive, I'll have you know. Okay? It was, it, it was nice and firm. Right, okay. So look, as we're traveling around, we were listening to mess different things at different times. And we listened to this one sermon together uh, on Naomi's laptop that a colleague at work said was a fantastic sermon and we should listen to it. It's from a, a, an incredibly well-known church in Australia, the name of which we shall remain nameless. We listened to it, it was some 40 minutes. I thought I felt, I felt good because I'm not the only one who preaches that long. So we listened for 40 minutes, okay? With my hand on my heart, in the, for the, the whole duration of that sermon, I never once heard the speaker refer to the Bible. Not once. You tell me how that is making genuine disciples. How is that, in any sense, keeping with the command of Jesus to make disciples by teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you? Friends, we make disciples not by teaching the latest ideas, 
about what's buzzing around, what's in vogue. It was, it's not about motivating people or making them feel positive. If you want that, you really are in the wrong place. Seriously, this is not a motivational class. You may not, warning, you may not leave this building feeling more positive about yourself than you did when you walked in. If you want that, go somewhere else, seriously. Because this place is exclusively about teaching Jesus' words. Some of those will make you feel better. Hallelujah! But lots of them will leave you quite challenged. Maybe even feeling rebuked. And so the point is, we're given this issue to teach the whole counsel of God. Why, let me ask you why quickly, I need to finish, but quickly, why is this so important? Why is teaching the Bible much more important than motivational talks about how you can be a happier Christian? Why is Bible teaching more important, quintessentially important? What is it about the Bible? It's the living word! Hallelujah! That's what we've called the church, the living word. Amen, Des. It's the living word. Jesus said, what did he say about it? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's because it's the living word. And participation in the Bible, participation in the words of the Bible, because they are living words, imparts to you. life, eternal life. The word of God is living and sharper than any two-edged sword. So let me tell you what this is going to look like. I'm going to sum up now. I really am going to sum up now, okay? Living word, church, tea tree, gully will be, as the name suggests, a Bible teaching church, period. It means is that the pages of the Bible will govern the entirety of our work. That's all we'll do there. It means that sound Bible teaching will be at the heart of every sermon. It means we will select preachers to preach on the basis of their proven track record to soundly and accurately handle the teaching of Jesus and communicate it in a way that's accessible to every person of our community. It means that at the heart of our singing, or we sometimes call worship, is the worst term we could use. And please forgive me, I know you're familiar with using it because worship is a term that covers all of life. So it's probably not the best term to use. Call it whatever you want, but worship preferably. It's why our singing and our songs will have, and at its core, songs and words that teach sound Bible truth. And our measure for choosing what we sing will not be what's hip, and what's going on out there, what every other church is doing, we really don't care what every other church is doing. Our song selection will be based on which songs communicate to us the depth and the wonder and the magnitude of the glory of Jesus. That's how we'll choose what we sing. It'll be a church where 
those who pray will pray prayers that are anchored in Bible truth. And even through prayer, there will be a co- coherency there through which Bible truth will be communicated. It's a church where kids' church will be anchored in sound Bible teaching so that from the earliest of ages, our youngsters are being drenched in the full breadth and length and width of Jesus' teaching. And it will be a church where every time we gather, we'll take the time to read not just half a verse of the Bible and think we've done Christianity a favor, but we'll open it. And we'll read chunks of it at a time, a chapter or whatever. We will give precedence and prominence and exclusivity to the living word. That's what living word theatrically is all about. That's what we're about. That's what we're exporting. That's where we'll be anchored. That's what the relocation is about. That's what the rebranding is all about. That's what the reinvention is all about. It's about making disciples, being sacrificial, being strategic, and making genuine disciples that last by baptizing them in Jesus' name and by teaching them, teaching them, teaching them everything and only what Jesus commanded. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And it's then, and there's a condition here, friends. It's then, and only then, am I with you always to the end of the age. I want you to know that. That tag-on promise of Jesus to be with us till the end is anchored to and grounded in and conditional to the prerequisites. Making disciples, baptizing in the name of Jesus, and teaching them everything he commands comes with Jesus' presence. And so when we go across the river, bring your bathers, okay? We'll go with the presence of Jesus. That's all you need to know. You know, you can forget everything I said this morning. Remember this one thing, that we go with Jesus' presence. And that's all we need to know.